Hi, and welcome to Soul Care Podcast. We are so glad you're here with us today. I'm Kimberly Willis. And I am Jinder Reinick. We are joined by our soul care expert, Warren Lamb. Hi, glad to be here. We are here to talk about soul care, what it means, what it looks like, and the hope it can offer. Our desire with this podcast is to offer hope for battling some of the greatest struggles we face as humans, and to do so with love, kindness, grace, and prayer. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for this journey into the world of biblical soul care. Let's get started. Well, welcome, friends. Um, It is with great pleasure that we welcome to the Soul Care Podcast a lady whose many contributions to the world of biblical soul care as an author, teacher, and podcast host touch thousands of lives every day. Her newest book is one of 12 books nominated to be voted for the 2023 Biblical Counseling Book of the Year by the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, with more on the way, we hope. Um, We will include links to her books in the show notes today. She herself is a certified biblical counselor and currently serves as outreach director and the Hope and Help podcast host for the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship. Her writing has been featured at Desiring God, the Gospel Coalition, the Biblical Counseling Coalition, Risen Motherhood, and other Christian platforms. Christine lives in South Carolina with her husband and three children. Her unwavering commitment to ministering to the wounded and broken is an inspiration to us all and makes her an automatic friend and ally to this ministry. So join us in welcoming Christine Chapel to the Soul Care Podcast. Welcome, Christine. Welcome. Hi. Yeah, thank you so much for the chance to chat. This is going to be fun, I'm sure. Thank you for being here. You've gotten very popular lately with the release of your new book. Yeah, and no. I before, <laughs> before we dive deep into discussing your book, Midnight Mercies, um, we would like to find out a little bit about your personal journey first. Um, you know, we want to know what sparked your initial interest into biblical soul care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think my interest into biblical soul care really originated with the fact that I was in need of biblical soul care, right? And so I needed to uh, to have biblical counseling and intensive discipleship as a, well, I mean, we all need it all the time, but it came, my need most became most apparent uh, in a postpartum season of motherhood where I was navigating depression, which I had navigated off and on since I was a teenager uh, in the wake of a car accident that I had that really turned my world upside down at that time. Uh, and so I was um, referred to IBCD by my pastor at the time who recommended that uh, I meet with someone on Monday nights in Escondido when they were doing counseling there. And that's how I got introduced. And so, you know, it's just by God's design that part of my story led me to IBCD. But at the same time, you know, like you mentioned, a lot of my story um, and then the ministry that I do now today uh, comes out of that place of walking through really distressing emotional turmoil. Um, you know, as a teenager, I was diagnosed with depression disorder, anxiety disorder, panic attacks, eating disorder. I was like, you know, I self-injured through cutting, um, was hospitalized for cutting and suicidal ideation at that time. And 
And so I have all in this history, you know, uh, unfortunately, that pain and, and those experiences, but I'm thankful that the Lord has used those sufferings and those struggles to now um, allow me the opportunity to comfort others with the comfort that he's given to me in the midst of um, that journey. And so, yeah, that's kind of where I've, I've landed here today. So you've already shared a little bit about um, some of the unique experiences that you've had that have shaped your approach to biblical soul care. What about some others? Your yeah, and shaped so approach to biblical soul care, yeah. Yeah, so I have, gosh, so many different voices that I have gleaned from and have been helped by over the years as I have, you know, I transitioned and kind of moved through my journey through being a counselee and then, you know, wanting to be trained as somebody who offers that intensive discipleship and soul care um, to others. And so on my journey, I, I have been most uh, touched by Ed Welch's writings, by Dr. Charles Hodge's writings on bipolar disorder and depression, um, Charles Spurgeon, and what he was able to articulate and to teach, you know, specifically on depression, but just out, just in general on the Christian life, you know, so gleaned a lot from him. Zach Eswine as well um, was so helpful to me. And so, gosh, I'm sure I could go on and on because I've talked to so many wonderful biblical counselors over the years through my podcast and and have read so many books. But I think if if I have to say who has really shaped the way that I've personally engaged my own heart and my own thoughts as I've navigated, um, you know, different distressing emotions, um, you know, and of course, this is above and beyond the scriptures, right? I mean, first and foremost, the yep. most influential book out of everything has been the scriptures, but, you know, the, the resources written um, by my brothers um, in Christ and sisters in Christ. You know, one name um, that was really helpful to me early on in my Christian walk was Elise Fitzpatrick and a lot of the resources that she wrote that really helped me to understand race and the gospel and how it applies to being a woman and working in ministry and things of that nature. So those are just some of the, the things that come to mind in terms of influences. Well, as, as Kimmy was kind of highlighting all of your accomplishments and what you're doing, um, we just have to ask, how do you balance your various roles now? Um, not only personally as a wife, mother, but then also um, in your your more professional efforts as a counselor, an author, podcast, everything that you've been doing, you, you're a very busy woman. How do you balance it all? Yeah, well, I have had to learn the hard way. Uh, and I think early on in trying to wrestle through young motherhood and and calling and ministry and being zealous for the Lord and wanting to do great things and then needing to be faithful at home there was a lot of inner conflict between those those uh those callings those roles those responsibilities and god was very gracious with me looking back i can see that i i have learned a lot and grown since then in terms of getting angry when i couldn't have the time to do what it was i wanted to do for the lord you know we have to entrust that timing to to god and so um now you know, over the years, I've really have begun to block out, you know, time so that I no longer work late at night. I don't work at night, period, with the exception of like, if it's an emergency. 
Um, but you know, I don't work late nights. I don't work early mornings. I drop my kids off at school and while they're at school is the time that I have to do what it is, whatever it is God has for me to do in that day. And there may be a lot of things going on and I just got to make a list and I get through what I get through. And I know that whatever I'm able to accomplish is what he had intended to me, me to accomplish in that day. And whatever needs to be put off or rescheduled or postponed, you know, I'm limited. I'm human. I can't get all the things done like that, you know? And so um, that's been a big part of the balance is just entrusting my productivity to the Lord and being content with whatever gets done, gets done. And whatever's not done, he knows about that. He planned for it and he'll get it done in his time. Um, and so I don't know if that answers your question, but I think just submitting our productivity to the Lord is important and some days are more fruitful than others. And he's got all that under control. And so I think that's, that's one of the ways I've, I've probably have matured over the years with that balance, um, being protected, um, protective of my own self and my own well-being, and not forcing myself to work late or get up early to work, but to just take the time that God gives me and be faithful uh, during that time frame to to whatever the task is he has set before me. That's very wise and takes a lot of self-discipline. We could, I think we probably need to do a podcast just on the importance of self-care because I know how hard that is. I, I have friends and family members that are saying, hey, are you resting? Are you managing, you know, are you getting weary or are you tired? So yeah, I know how difficult it is and yeah, very wise. I'm, I'm gonna, yeah, I love what you said too about just entrusting the Lord in your work product. That if it's if you're walking in step with the Lord and this is what you feel that He's put on your heart to do, then this is sufficient, and and that's you don't have to continue to work on it. You have to stay up late to 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 work on it further. Like this is this is what the best product right. may be, and you trust the Lord that you're delivering your best. And yeah, and that and that is a I think that comes from patience and embracing the Lord's perspective that his timing is not my timing. And so if it was up to my timing, then I would never have an outstanding to-do list because everything would get done and I wouldn't feel like stuff is hanging unfinished around me. Right. But, you know, it took me five years to walk through the ACBC certification process from start to finish. It took me three years to write Midnight Mercies. And so you can take a look at some of the things that are kind of coming to fruition now and realize that I started a long time ago. This is not yeah. stuff that I did within a 12 month period because I can spin 50 plates at once. It's just you keep showing up and you do a little bit as the Lord allows day by day. And if you keep showing up, Lord willing, it will eventually get done. <laughs> and then you can be like, oh, great, God has sustained me in that. And so I think just learning that to be patient um, and that had, you know, that did take discipline, but also took humility and having to ask for deadlines to be extended and, you know, to be able to be willing to say, hey, I thought I'd be able to get this done at this amount of time, but I can't. So help. I need more time. Um, that's just things that I have learned over the years. And, you know, what, what more can you do? I feel, I, like I've, I, I feel like I've just received counseling because I've had a, a, a book project that I've been working on off and on for eight years. And I mm. was going to have it done a year ago and I was going to have it done in, 
in August. I was going to have it done in October. And now I'm sitting, I may not make it by the first of the year. And, and it, that's very, what you just said, just ministered to me. It's okay. It'll get done when it gets done and the timing will be right. So right. I need to be patient with God's process. God's timing, God's trajectory. So thank you for yeah. this dishwasher load. I mean, we just have to take as as it comes and entrust the outcome to him. I love that you say that because I think I really struggle um, right now. I'm definitely in a season where I stay up late trying to finish something or I try to get up early or, you know, just this week. Um for instance, on Wednesday, you know, I get a call from my son's school and my whole day is turned upside down and it, it really put me in a spin of feeling overwhelmed. And I just find that really encouraging, like what you just said, because it it's, takes me extra long. And in this season of my life, I do keep getting interrupted by my child, which I, which I should, but you know, I love that, um, you being a mom and and God has all these desires on your heart too to remind it's just like so refreshing and such a wonderful reminder that um our time is in God's hands and um so thank you for that yeah it was very encouraging yeah, yeah. well and I know Jinda has got like 14 candles going all at one time too so <laughs> yeah I was gonna say and again not to continue to use this time for you to counsel us <laughs> but um it was also really um it resonated when you said give the anger by uh interruptions not allowing you the time to get done what you feel like god has put on your heart and that's certainly something that i have struggled with feeling like i feel like what i'm trying to pursue is something god has put on my heart but then i'm interrupted so many times i'm mad at the interruptions that are impeding me from doing what I think is God's calling in my life. Um, and the interruptions might be my family. And then you feel mom guilt, right? So then you feel mm -hmm. even worse. So yeah, a lot of what you said already, just what, 30 minutes in or 15 minutes in have been um, really resonating today. Yeah. We didn't go to Midnight Mercies because both of them used two words that you use a lot in Midnight Mercies, overwhelmed, angry right shame mm -hmm. guilty so yeah what um yeah so let's let's go ahead let's get into talking about the good stuff the exciting part midnight mercies how did you come to write such a deeply personal and impactful little book that's touching so many hearts in the few short months since it's been published um god has just been so to open doors for me that i feel like we're just of him and not me, you know, undeserved opportunities um, just by gracious brothers in Christ who, who, have, who have, I don't know, just helped me to steward my story for the glory of God. And I, I knew ever since I got first was saved a couple weeks after my dad died from cancer in 2011, I knew as soon, as soon as I was baptized, like my baptism was my, hey, I know the scriptures say we proclaim Jesus Christ, the gospel and the hope of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to use my testimony about my dad's death to proclaim how God saved me and his goodness, you know. And so you live into that great commission call that I personally was so eager to live into as a new believer. I was 28 years old at the time. And I felt like I had so much catching up to do, you know. And so ever since then... I've always felt the Lord give me that desire, that zeal, even though I was totally against public speaking. I was not 
I was more like, let's just hide and not be vocal about things. But, you know, you meet Jesus and he does a work in your life. And it's like, you know, how do you keep silent about things like this? And so, uh, but I never really anticipated that what I would be vocal about, you know, ministry-wise long-term would be my suffering and the different struggles that I have gone through, you know, in just processing life and overwhelm and sorrow and grief and anger and hopelessness and weariness and anxiety and shame, and loneliness. And, you know, as moms, it's not just the internal, you know, conflicts that we are wrestling with, but we have relational conflicts, financial pressures, job pressures, ministry responsibilities, uh, overwhelmed schedules, you know, uh, and, and, and spiritual warfare, to be honest, something that I think we oftentimes neglect that in the midst of all those things going on, we have an enemy that is lurking in the shadows, waiting for someone to devour. And who better than to devour a weary mom who's trying to care for her family and be faithful and she, and to, to get her to even devour herself through her negative self-talk, through the self-condemnation and the merciless mindset that he can tempt us to when we feel like we can't carry it all perfectly. You know, we can't just sashay down the hallway with a smile on our face while there's this chaos and this pressure and this internal, you know, battle going on. And so it's not a very flattering story to steward. You know, I'm not like very, you know, enthusiastic that this is what I've had to, you know, process and wrestle pointing people to Jesus um, and sharing you know, the ways that he comforted and counseled me in, in those those moments, um, in particular, Midnight Mercies, you know, we go lightly through a week I spent in the mental hospital after a total breakdown and wanting to die. And so you can see, you know, it's not anything that's glorious about me in this particular story, but I really do hope that the book puts God on display as just, you know, he's the God who comforts the downcast. And it's so hard to see that in the midst of depression. It really is. Um, so if Midnight Mercies is used to encourage people, um, mothers in particular, then I'm, I, it's, done its, it's done its job. It's done what I have hoped that it would do. I just, I want to say at the beginning when you're in the introduction and in the journey, you know, I, um, being a Christian, being a Christ follower, I don't, most mothers in my life are not. And when you said right here, you know, this um, culture of mommy needs wine to cope with stress and sorrow, that is so prevalent. Um, and what I loved about your book was like, it was like, oh, you gave a voice where I don't, I think even in circles, in secular cir circles, no women aren't willing to admit to each other, oh my gosh, this is so hard. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was in a group where it was wine and Cheerio play date, you know, and where now, like definitely in the last four years, God has changed my heart a lot. And where I see, I'm like, oh no, we, we, and I think you talk about this in the book too. It's like how, how desperately we definitely need God, but also that community of where we can say, yeah, this is hard. Let's help each other you know um so right when i read that i was like i have to read this whole book. <laughs> oh well good I, I grabbed you at the beginning that's great um and i think that you you touch on something that's really important you know and and it's 
the topic of alcohol, you know, depending on what circles you swim in, can be um, a heated, heated discussion. Everyone, you know, maybe treating it differently. Um, and I think the point that I prefer to make when it comes to alcohol and is, is are we turning to alcohol as a refuge, as a comfort, as an escape, as a way to numb or to cope with life? And the reason that I, that, that is something that is important to me is because I did. And when you are already teetering on the edge of overwhelm and hopelessness, if you have a history of depression or different emotional, you know, challenges that you've faced, um, you know, the alcohol is not going to help. It's not going to stabilize you. It's not going to fill you with the Holy Spirit that you might be able to better cope with your overwhelming grief or sorrow. And so it's not to say that, you know, you have a you have a glass of wine, you know, with a friend in the evening is is a sin and you should never. But I think it is to say that if you are already if you already know you're predisposed or you tend toward melancholy, you tend toward depression, you tend toward feeling hopelessness that in those moments, especially in, in those instances, um, you know, we know scientifically, right? We science proves that alcohol is a depressant. And so I had to, you know, really God over the years kind of helped me as soon as I came to know the Lord and I um, coping with my dad's death and the grief that came after that, you know, I was drinking myself numb. Uh, I was not a Christian yet. So a couple, the first two weeks after my dad died, I was just drinking, 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 because I didn't have any way to, to process the, the despair I was feeling. Um, but all throughout my life as a believer, I look back and see how God was trying to set me apart. And I was like, well, I'll set myself apart by maybe just not drinking all the time, but one or two glasses here and there, and that'll work fine. But the, the problem is, is that when you even give something like that a couple inches, then on a really bad day, when you just can't take it anymore, where do you turn? And for me, on that really bad day, um, right before I actually got, uh, went and checked into the mental hospital, um, it was alcohol. It was alcohol that I turned to. And so it's just dangerous. It's dangerous. And that's why I, um, I bring it up and midnight mercies yeah i think the and so so great i mean yes I, I see those groups all the time too or the um the hashtags if you will or you know i deserve this or i you know mom's had a hard week or is it five o'clock yet and i think it's a it's it's a very normalized um mm -hmm. coping mechanism um nowadays for mothers and i think so many things are highlighted in this book that mm -hmm. i wanted to to remember or to share. Um, one thing is I, I feel like the reason it's resonating so quickly as well um, with mothers is the authenticity and the realness to it. I feel like mothers gravitate even on, on social media to moms where they feel like they're being true, you know, like real, like they show photos of a messy house or they're showing not all dolled up for the day. And, and those are some of the Instagram mers that are, that are really popular, right? Cause it's, it's feeling like, oh, I'm not alone that my house is a mess, but I think your book takes it a step further and calls out some of the realities so courageously of things that we're all dealing with and, and pushing through 
thinking we have to and not asking for the help or feeling like we have to be that that superhuman, which I I love the line that just said, I got this is the cry of a super mom, but help is the cry of a saint who needs uh, who who knows her need. Um, and that that is it. We feel like we have to look in the mirror and with everything that's on our shoulders, say, I got this. I just got to push through. I got to push through and feeling like asking for help is a failure. And I, I don't think I don't think it is. And I think your book so beautifully gives that that hope to mothers. Um, and so I think it's it was very courageous. I can understand um, why it might have taken taken a long time <laughs> to write um, because it's, it's a lot to decide to share with the world. Um, and we're so glad that you did. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for that. Um, instead of just defining depression, you do a magnificent job of describing its many faces, like anger and hopelessness um, and so many others uh, that show themselves in, in all of our lives. Just as I was saying, we're all, we all resonate with this. Um, what caused you to take that approach? Yeah, I think I often teach that the you know i don't want to just regurgitate a list of symptoms that you can google and learn about depression because i'm not that's not where i'm coming from it's not where the scriptures come from and so you can you're certainly welcome to do that right but i'm more concerned about what my experience was and my experience was i was not really well equipped to engage the different emotional facets of the experience of depression. And I think what one of the things that helped me most on my journey was to was to understand that when I say I'm depressed, that's a great starting point, but it's not an ending point, that there's more to uh, unfurl or to peel back in terms of the human experience of depression than just one word can encapsulate. And so that's why I say at the beginning that depression is a multifaceted human experience, right? And so when we even just think of it that way, we understand immediately, you know, there's physical you know, components going on, the spiritual components going on. I've been influenced by David Pallison's nested circle chart where he talks about, you know, it's our heart at the core of who we are is our heart, right? But our hearts are physically embodied. And so we have physical uh, pressures that are putting um, that are burdening the heart. And we know that as embodied souls, that this, the heart influences the body, the body can influence the soul. And a lot of times, mysterious ways that you can't always figure out. It's like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? And so it can be difficult, you know, to have complete self-knowledge with that. But even beyond that, you know, in those nested circles talk, we have hearts that are physically embodied, but we're also socially embedded. And so we have the context of kids and husbands or broken relationships or work conflicts of just social pressures to consider in and then in all of that the devil working you know in spiritual warfare but at the end of the day ultimately all of that chaos and all of that brokenness is under god's providence you know so it's like even if you just think of who we are how we are made and how we exist in this world that god is sovereignly and wisely and goodly controlling you can't just oversimplify depression and expect to be effective uh, or to offer meaningful help to the person who is is experiencing and fighting on multiple levels and multiple different um, fronts, the different 
challenges that are so totally normal to the Christian life. And I like to even say, you know, and remind people that Christians especially will face more difficulty and affliction and distress. The Bible is so clear about that. And so, you know, then even having to navigate, well, I thought, you know, the Christian faith meant that my faith would make me impervious to sorrow, you know, or that make me stoic in the, in, you know, when the waves of affliction hit. And it's like that, where do you see that? Because I'm going narrative to narrative to narrative, and I'm not finding it. And I'm not even finding it in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is sitting there turning to his friends saying, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Stay here with me. Watch. You know, he, even in his overwhelm, which was sinless, but still human, turned to his friends and voiced his distress and said, in essence, help. Support me here in this moment. I can't do it without you, you know. And of course, they failed him. Which you know, even then he knows what it is uh, for friends to fail us when we turn to them for help in those moments. So I could go on and on, but um, I'm not sure right. if that even answered your question. Sorry. Yeah. One of the things that um, I was struck by is that I've been part of the biblical counseling world for over 35 years. And you very boldly, very confidently, very gently, very humbly open up a discussion about something that is little talked about in the arena of biblical counseling and soul care. It's almost a taboo type subject. It ends up being marginalized and you're like, oh, no, no, no. We're dragging this into the living room and we're going to look at this. We're going to talk about this. That to me was very remarkable um, it, and it very timely too, I think. So the question is, what prompted you to take such a bold approach like I said, an arena that doesn't really welcome much conversation about depression of mm. this depth, this level. Mm. Oh, that's such a great question, Warren. And I would love to take the opportunity to answer that by saying that the scriptures did that way long before I did. You know, I'm not doing anything different than what God's word does which is it goes to the depths. There's nothing too taboo for God's word. There is no pit too deep for his living word to speak hope and help and light and life into. And again, you just don't see in the scriptures, God elevating people to the point of they're impervious to brokenness and impervious to sorrow. They're impervious to feeling overwhelmed, like all of the saints that he uses. I mean, Moses, Elijah, Paul. Um, I mean, all of, you know, Midnight Mercies is narrative after narrative after narrative. But again, even just looking to our Savior, who I'm not saying he experienced depression, but if anyone knows what it's like to walk through the darkness, it's him. In fact, the darkness that he had to walk through is way more uh, eternal and, and endless. I mean, than anyone, any of us will ever be made to walk. We, we, can't, we can't even fathom the the darkness that he walked through and yes he did so sinlessly and we're not sinless so, you know we and to even think we're in that we would get to a point in our christian walk that we would 
be like, oh, I actually, I did pretty good through that. You know, I, I, I did a lot better than I thought I would. At that moment, you're not rejoicing in the Lord, you're rejoicing in yourself and you're proud of your own performance. You know, I mean, we are going to continue to need Jesus Christ to carry us in his bosom all the way through the valley of the shadow of death until we get to glory. There's not going to be a time when you don't need him to do that for you, you know. And so I love that the scriptures encourage us with that type of honesty, you know, because that gives people like me and hopefully others. I mean, I know others. I'm not the only one, you know, Spurgeon and Martin Luther and so many other saints who have gone before us who have written about the dark night of soul. I mean, if we really tune our ears to the even the history of God's people, you know, teaching about uh, what it is to suffer affliction and grief and despair and be hopeless. I mean, I don't know if it's just like a cultural thing or a 21st century thing where we've been taught that we don't talk about it or it's not relevant. Or if you're, if you're feeling this way, then you're doing something that's totally abnormal. You know, I think the scriptures above any other resource we have normalize the experience of despair and sorrow and hopelessness. Um, but of course, they don't stop there. They give us, uh, you know, the light that we need to navigate those emotions and those experiences, um, you know, with the hope and help of God's, God's son. What's interesting is we talk often about how the enemy works in the dark and the shadows. And this this subject that we're calling depression, but melancholy and mm -hmm. vexation of the soul and all of that, that scripture describes is, has been kept in the, in the corner, in the dark. And you do an incredible job of shining that bright light of God's truth on it, bringing it out. And I think in the process, it is disempowering the enemies, the enemy in many people's lives. I think that's one of the reasons for just the incredible popularity of this book. Agreed. And I also feel like what you just said a moment ago about understanding that just admitting you're depressed is not the end goal that, or that's not the end game, right? You have to actually get to the end point and you have to start to work through that. And I think that's the next step that your book takes it. I think that we have almost normalized accepting Too mental gross. illness. So I think we've normalized mental health, right? I mean, there's, there's an aware, a global awareness. People are, if they're like, there's pride now, if you, if you admit that you have depression, it's like, oh, that person's strong enough to admit it. Your book is like, no, I'm not only admitting it, I'm calling it, I'm bringing it to the light. I think that is a, a big difference as well. Um, because that is, it, it just really to, I think what the point, the question that you had, Warren, people, you're admitting things that we all have felt and no one's really putting it out there or hasn't since, you know, some of the authors that, that you mentioned before or the, the Bible. But we don't always look, even as Christians, we're not always going first to the scripture for uh, support in those times. So, yes, it, it was very, I think it was, um, it did take a lot of courage. We keep on mentioning that. But I also think it was just calling, calling it out and bringing it to the light that was so powerful. I think yeah. there's a, a part in your in your book you say when you you've gone from you were at a group session and you went back to your room and you went and you opened up the Bible and you hadn't done it in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, when I was reading, I really was curious about your journey, because, and especially in the beginning, you were talking about since you were a teenager, 
you had been diagnosed by many different things. And I, I want to kind of understand your journey. It sounds like you um, probably had psychology, psychiatric mm -hmm. help before finding biblical counseling. And I, I would like to know how that happened. Um, so, yes, I was, you know, as a 17-year-old, when you are caught cutting yourself by a uh, student in your class, and then you have essentially a total breakdown in the, on your campus and get driven away in an ambulance to a facility, uh, you're going to be under psychiatric care. And so, yeah, I was uh, under psychiatric care for about a year in the wake of that time. And uh, I, a number of medications, I mean, too many to even remember. Uh, I don't, you know, so I'm not going to say um, to the degree that they were helpful. I don't think I could speak eloquently to that. Um, but thankfully, I was not on them for a prolonged period. Um, but then, you know, like I said, you know, fast forward however many years it was to, to the second hospitalization. Yeah. I mean, you don't go to the psychiatric hospital and not get talked to a doctor. That's part of the process. And I knew that, which is why I was so reluctant to go. You know, but sometimes there's a humility in saying, I don't know. I don't know what to do. All I know is I've tried to figure it out on my own for years and I'm not changing. Nothing's changing. Uh, you know, I, I keep on falling flat on my face. And in particular, when you feel like you want to die and you're dreaming and, and envisioning different ways to do so, uh, the best choice for some people is going to be to get somewhere where you know that people will keep you safe until this whatever it is settles down to where you can begin to process with more reason um, you know, so, so I'm definitely not like anti, you know, hospital, it has its place, but you got to know that when you go, they're going to, um, look at you through that lens. And that was part of really the struggle for me in the, that, that week in the hospital, you know, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder too, at the time, based on my history and the symptoms that I was experiencing. And, you know, I had been told that my I mean, literally, I've been told my brain is diseased. I will always be this way. And, um, you know, offered a quote, somebody told this to me, a yellow brick road of medication. You know, so immediately from that perspective, it's like it's possible to put someone in a box and promise them stability, prosperity, a yellow brick road to happiness. Um, and, and that was just so yucky. I don't know any other word. It just didn't, I didn't feel like I was seen as a person or heard, you know, as a person. It just felt so impersonal and sterilized and like I was just another number, you know. And so that's not everyone's experience. And I'm not saying that everyone who is in the field of, you know, the, the you know, psychiatry and the mental hospital workers. I'm not saying anyone's bad. I think we all want to help people when they're suffering, you know, but just for me and my experience, um, it was just a real big discouragement. And so, yeah, um, I was forced to have psychiatric care. I mean, what, what, you can't say no or else they don't let you leave. Um, yeah. You know, so that's kind of the climate, the, the climate in America and elsewhere in the world where it's actually even a lot more severe 
um, in terms of the the forced institutions and all of that. I don't know if I'm just on a rabbit trail now, if that touched on what you were hoping to find out, but that talks a little bit more about that experience. Yeah. I, and then I just, I'm curious how you found, how you found biblical counseling. Like, yes. Yeah. That to, to the, you know what I mean? The soul okay. care. Yeah. That has. Mm -hmm. So that's a good question that too. <laughs> yeah. So when I was wrestling with postpartum depression after the birth of our third child, and I was, I told you, I, you know, began to have counseling at IBCD, which grew within me an interest in biblical counseling. Um, my hospitalization happened after that. The hospitalization happened after I had already begun to be trained for biblical counseling. You know, so talk about let's add some more shame to the mix is here I am trying to learn how to help others deal with these types of overwhelming problems. And I can't even figure it out myself. You know, so I don't want to give the impression that because I knew some things about biblical counseling, that that meant that now somehow, like I said, I keep coming to back to this word impervious, you know, because you can have a whole bunch of head knowledge about a lot of things, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to help you when you feel like you are um, being crushed to the point of despair, like you despair of life itself, like even the Apostle Paul. I mean, even bringing up the Apostle Paul, I mean, golly, who had more knowledge than him about, you know, biblical counseling? You know, I mean, obviously it wasn't called that at the time, but just, you know, ministry of the word. And you know, he saw Jesus face, he saw the risen Christ. I mean, he had a thorn in his side from to keep him from being conceited about the surpassing revelations he'd been given. So if anyone had seen and known more than him at that time, I mean, there was no one else who knew better, right? But that still did not prevent him from being crushed to the point of despair. You know, it still did not keep him from uh, doing the things he didn't want to do, right? And not being able to do the things he did want to do. He still wrestled with the spirit and flesh. And so I think that's even an important part of what you're saying that I'm I'm not tooting my own horn because this is not to my glory that I that I share these things. But I think I continue to fall back on the fact that God's word doesn't promise these things, your own brokenness and experiencing that. And you may for a time feel like you're doing pretty well. Things are going good. You're feeling really spiritual, spiritually strong. But all it takes is one bad day for it to go completely out of your expectations right? Or one accident that totally changes your world upside down. I mean, we see Job go through that, right? Job started at the beginning of the process, you know, humble, confident in, in his faith. But the longer and longer it, it endured, um, the more and more questions he had uh, and the more and more doubts he wrestled with. So anyway, um, yeah, it, it was God who changed me in the mental hospital through his word. And I talk about it in Midnight Mercies in the last chapter. It was him showing me his mercy in the moment when I could not do anything on my own. Like I couldn't figure myself out. I couldn't stop being depressed. I didn't know what this story was going to look like moving out of the hospital. What are my, what's my family going to think? What's going to happen to my ministry? Am I just damaged goods? I'm diseased forever. I mean, all of these fears you know, and it was God's kindness, period, that changed everything for me in that week. And over time, uh, just began to 
get more comfortable in sitting with those overwhelming emotions and putting Christ at the center of them instead of putting me at the center of them. A couple of things came to mind as you were talking here. Um, one is the incredible importance there is for the body of Christ to be equipped to provide one another in care, especially in those very dark times and situations. But that requires the second part of it is you keep coming back to how clear God's word is. And we talk about the number one tool we have in biblical counseling and soul care is properly interpreted scripture, properly applied. So those two things together are, are absolutely critical. They're, they're mandatory. And I think, you know, one of the reasons our ministry even exists, one of the reasons IBCD is, exists and ACBC is just really trying to train and equip the body of Christ for one anothering soul care. Um, and this just really brings that into focus for us really, really well. Yeah. So something that you just said, sorry, the shifting of putting God in the center versus putting yourself at the center um, kind of re reminded me of a couple, we mentioned it a couple of times, but the reference of first Corinthians six twenty about um, and you're talking about the story of Elijah in particular, where I've highlighted that um, Elijah accepting these uh, nourishment from the angel mm -hmm. when he was at a point of wanting to um, to to be to just not live, to just be dead and be done. Um, and you said, could it be because the man knew his life was not his own? And I think that that shifting of perspective um, that was mentioned mm -hmm. a couple times throughout your book is really powerful. And you kind of alluded to that same thing happening, you know, when that revelation came that God shifted the attention off of yourself and onto him and how powerful that shift is and how consumed we get with us. Uh, even mm -hmm. another reference of, you know, what's wrong with me? If our house is burning down, we're not going to sit and contemplate what we did that led to the fire causing our house to burn down and, and be so self, um, uh, you know, just harp, harp, harping on ourselves. I should have done that. Why did I let this happen? No, we're going to address the need. We're going to shift the attention from ourselves to where the, the help can come from. Um, just, just so powerful uh, word pictures as well. What's interesting, Jinda, is Christine and her family actually went through a house fire in the in the recent past. So, the very, yeah, so it resonated. wasn't a word picture. It was a true story. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was from a, a true story. But I think what you're picking up on is uh, hints at really the perspective shift that God gave to me in that season, you know, which really uh, was birthed out of Dr. Charles Hodge's book, Good Mood, Bad Mood. And, you know, a statement that he made there as he was working with a woman who he had been counseling with a long time and she was really struggling to um, make any kind of forward progress, you know, in, in healing on her journey through depression and I think an eating disorder as well. So, you know, just kind of a mix of of, of difficult issues that she was um, seeking help for. And, uh, you know, he talks about in the book about he, you know, had to, after hearing her talk for so long, really recognize that. Um, you know, her motive for living had turned into accomplishing all of these outcomes and that he thought that she could, you know, make progress in, in a positive, you know, Godward direction if she changed the goal 
for her life. And so the goal would no longer have to be, my goal is to figure out how do I get remarried? How do I get attractive enough for someone to love me again? How do I overcome this depression and just be happy and pleasant all the time? You know, fill in the blank, whatever the goal is, right? And the goal for me, I recognized through uh, this time was that I wanted to be depression free. You know, I didn't want to have overwhelming emotions. I didn't want to feel hurt or heartbroken. I didn't want to feel so weak in the face of overwhelm. Like I wanted to just feel capable and strong and steady and stable. And those in themselves can be good things, right? But the problem becomes is when, as with anything, right? When we take a good thing, a good desire, and we make it an ultimate, right? So when we say, I want to be depression free, and that's the ultimate, that is the goal. Meaning that everything that I do in my spiritual walk with Christ, in how I manage my diet, I mean, I'm not saying these things are bad, but we can make them into something that is serving the object of our worship, which is this outcome we're trying to produce. And so how, you know, Dr. uh, Charles Hodges in his statement says he, you know, suggested to this woman to embrace a different goal. And that goal would be to say to herself, and to believe and ask for God, the faith to believe, to, to say, I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. And up to that point, you know, when the Lord really helped me to see that I was living for a different goal. I want to be depression free more than I want to breathe. And so the problem becomes when you can't get that goal, you don't want to breathe anymore. Life's not worth living unless you can have that goal. And so to finally come to a place, you know, Jinda, where you were talking about where I, I put Christ at the center of my emotions was to say, look, I don't want to feel this way, right? But even though I do feel this way, I can glorify God with my life right here. And I want to do that, right? And I think people who are the Christians listening, we all want to do that, but it's hard. it's it's hard and there are no magical formulas other than what scripture calls us to which is to die to our desire to die die to our desire to be depression free and that's not to say we don't make wise choices we don't make good worthwhile pursuits toward that goal right but the hope can't be i hope in change you can hope for change but you hope in christ until he changes you from one degree of glory to another and you start to see those fruits of the spirit but that's on his time our call is to abide his his part is to produce the fruit and develop and mature the fruit through the abiding that we do and so that goal is what broke down for me moment by moment in this moment where i just don't want to leave my room what does it look like for me to make a choice that glorifies god with my life And sometimes that looked like getting dressed, a chore, going outside and looking at flowers. I mean, very small things, but it was constantly, you know, with the Spirit's help and through the word being mindful that my, I do not belong to myself, that whether we live or we die, it says in Romans, I think 14, I'm not sure whether we live or we die, we live to the Lord and we die to the Lord, you know? Um, And so uh, that was an important part of of my journey. And I'm, I'm thankful for God showing that to me because I, I wouldn't have said I was living for something else. I really wouldn't have. And I didn't want to, but you know, sin is blinding and it's subtle and sneaky. 
I was just going to say it's so subtle because um, just as you said, the desire can seem so altruistic and so pure and in a goal to edify God. But through time and, and the, you know, subtle changes, we've now idolized the something that is this mm-hmm. ultimate goal instead of who's going to give us the courage and the strength to re- to get to the goal if it ultimately glorifies him. But we've now taken the ultimate goal and idolized it. And it's become the one thing that gets us up in the mornings and that we pursue versus the strength, you know, putting it in him. Um, so it, it is a very subtle uh, shift. Um, and all of a sudden we are completely off course. Yeah. Well, we, we can be tempted to think that our sanctification um, is, is on us. And like I said, it's not that we don't have a part to play. Of course we do. Right. But um, the spirit has his own plan. God has his own plan. And it's him who yeah. takes our moral effort, takes our abiding and produces fruit, you know, from that apart from him. It's just self-righteousness. If he's not, if he's not the one building that house, right? <laughs> if he's not the one building you up, but you're doing it in your own strength. And no, no, I got this, Lord. I'm doing my devotions. I'm good. I don't, I don't need any extra help. Well, you know, as soon as that house comes crashing down, you realize um, it was all all for naught and and you do you still do need the spirit you need the spirit to change your heart so yeah a question comes to mind you know what role did the body of christ play in your healing journey the, the one anothering ministry if you will the soul care yeah well i mean most immediately um the body of christ you know we had one friend in particular, a brand new friend. I had only met her one time and we had just relocated across the country. We had no friends, but um, through a connection in California, I was introduced to a, a friend of a friend who, who had someone out here where I live now. And um, even though we had only met one time just to kind of get introduced and I had shared with her, you know, some of the ways I was struggling uh, the morning that we, uh, we realized that I, the only option for me was to go to the ER because the situation had gotten so bad and I couldn't, you know, get emergency care otherwise, uh, was, and so, but I had two young kids at home. Mm. I'm not, I'm not going to suffer what I'm going through and take my three-year-old and my four-year-old along to the ER with me to watch mom go through what she's about to go through. I knew what was going to happen because you don't go saying you're, you're suicidal and hurting yourself and then they let you out. So we needed someone to watch the kids. And uh, if it was not for this one friend who so graciously dropped everything that she was doing to drive 40 minutes to come and be with kids she had never even met mm-hmm. in a house she had never even been in. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's mercy. That's God sent mercy. And uh, you know, so that's just one example among many that I could give, you know, on my journey. I, looking back, I can see, and it's uh, something that I point out in the, one of the last chapters, the loneliness chapter in the story of Naomi, where, you know, God wasn't present in terms of I sensed his presence that week, not until the very end where I talk about where I did. It was very obvious. But in that moment of that morning when I went to the mental hospital, I did not. Uh, I was so disoriented, you know, but in, and Naomi, I think to some degree too, uh, you know, suffered through her own period of disorientation, but God's presence is manifested through the care of other people. 
you know, and even when we can't see or sense him, we know that his spirit indwells with those he rallies around us. And those are the hands and feet of Jesus. And that's who that friend was to me that morning and, and, and on and on through that journey, you know, just simple friends, um, you know, but even the council of believers through books like Midnight Mercies, like Ed Welch's book, like Dr. Hodge's book. I mean, this was a this was a team effort to to get me back up. You know, it wasn't just people who were physically embodied. It was people who had poured their life and ministry into the written in written words and communication. You know, so there's a lot of different forms that it can take for people, the community that um, Christ's body gives. And of course, it's best, you know, manifested in the context of the local church. But some people don't have immediate access to someone who can be at their house in 10 minutes, you know? And so um, there are a lot of different ways the Lord used community, but that was just one particular story that was so meaningful and made such an impact for us in that time. We often think of biblical counseling and soul care as something very formal, but um, in our ministry, we really try to teach that it's, it's the one another relationships. It really is because discipleship is, is relationship. You can't do it any other way. And so that that being able to capture that and say, this really is person to person, shoulder to shoulder, face to face, heart to heart, uh, such an important uh, thing to continue to bring into the center of the conversation. We're, we've gone over time, but um, one of the questions I have is asking you, what benefits do you think there are will be for men, especially husbands and pastors, to reading Midnight Mercies? Yeah, I think one of the benefits, which I'm sure you could ask my husband, uh, because he actually read it, <laughs> so that was actually surprising to me. Um, but once it came out on paperback, he he read through it, and he I mean, he told me he cried. There were times, mm -hmm. where, I mean, and he, this is part of his story too. You know, sure. and there are, he's in a couple of the chapters very vague, you know, briefly where I allude to him um, as helping me, but also in a tender moment where I did see him, you know, totally break down um, where we were both kind of breaking down over. I think I say something like a brokenness that we didn't know how to fix, you know, where we just feel powerless and you feel as a sufferer, you feel powerless, especially in depression, because Usually it's, well, I've tried everything. <laughs> I've tried. I've tried to not be this way. I'm still this way. I can't figure out why I'm still this way. Powerless, helplessness, hopelessness. It results from that. But, you know, I think we often can forget the the spouse or the caregiver or the family member, even, you know, who who so desperately wants to solve that problem for their loved one, for their wife, for, you know, the, the person that's suffering, and they can't. You know, and, and that's just the reality that we have on this side of heaven is that we face brokenness that has no human solution sometimes. Um, and so I think for the husband who reads this book, he'll get a better understanding. I'm not saying I'm figuring out everyone's experience of depression, but there may be language that's there that the wife has not been able to articulate on her own, uh, words that she hasn't been able to find. I mean, it's so hard to describe what this experience feels like, you know, and sometimes when you try, you get the worst responses and it just deepens the pain. Yeah. It makes you feel like I don't want to share because I don't even understand it, let alone I'm going to sound like I'm crazy talking when I try to explain it to you. And I've had those experiences too. 
And so I think that's the benefit is, is maybe getting a little bit more insight into the world of the person, of the wife um, who's, who's suffering and also understanding that her experience is multifaceted. It's not just she's in a bad mood. It's not just a, or a low mood. It's not just the kids, you know, are driving her nuts or what it's, it's so much more. And I think as a, um, as caregivers, as husbands, I'm, I'm not a husband, but you know, caregivers in general, we tend to oversimplify the problems that our loved ones have and to say, Oh, just do this. Or, Oh, you just need to mellow out or, Oh, just go take a nap without really, you know, entering into that experience with compassion. And, um, so hopefully the book would help in some small way with that. I know for me reading it, when we deal with this in our ministry all the time, but for me reading it was, um, you use multifaceted. I think that's very important because for most men, we are problem solvers. So we say, mm -hmm. oh, well, this is the problem. Here's the solution. But that multifaceted, we have to step back and we have to look at the different aspects of what is being experienced and not try to solve the problem or fix the problem or fix the person. And I think Midnight Mercy does an excellent job of that. I want to just, so one of my, one of the books that I've read more, more than any other, other than the Bible is um, Gentle and Lowly, Christ's Heart for Sufferers and Sinners. We're using it in our counseling ministry all the time. But I've already ordered a bunch of copies of Midnight Mercy because this is something that is going to be a have a phenomenal impact on the ministry that our that our counseling ministry and our training brings. So um, you can see it right over my shoulder. I've already read it twice, um, but it's it's it really has impacted me. And I've been doing this a long time. Uh, just even talking to you today has been incredibly insightful um, and and helpful. So like, the question that comes now is, what are your hopes for Midnight Mercies being able to change our conversations about loss and sadness and, and everything that goes around, surrounds depression and motherhood? Yeah, I think my hope would be, uh, you know, we used the word earlier, normalize. And I think that is something that we've gotten away from or... I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but I, I would love to see Midnight Mercies normalize the conversation of what a normal Christian life experience is, because I'm not sure that's the popular messages we're seeing, that the normal Christian life is full of sorrow and grief and heaviness, you know, and it's not sorrow, grief and heaviness, mind you, that's meant to break us down. But as believers, we know that in the province and the grace of God, that these things are meant to build us up into Christ, into maturity in Christ. Um, but again, I think even that perspective has been lost in even in in some ways in the church where, you know, sadness is and, and these overwhelming, you know, sometimes called negative or, you know, uh, emotions like have like as if they have no value. As if they ought to be avoided at all costs, as if, well, you're feeling this way. Well, you shouldn't feel this way. You know, I was like, but, but I do. So um, that's now not helpful. What? Yeah. Now what? And so that's really what I try to, uh, I talk a lot, you know, in with women and in my different 
teachings that I do. And, and even in the new mini book I have coming out on postpartum depression is trying to kind of set aside that shoulds and shouldn'ts that we have for ourselves. And so it doesn't help you. You're not going to be able to move forward with, with this thought of, I shouldn't feel like this. You can't move forward from that because that's a hypothetical. You do feel like this. What's the next step? And so um, if we can normalize, what does it look like to, as Christians, as Christian mothers in particular, um, navigate the the burdens of life um, with Christ and and have an emotional language and uh, have, you know, resources through the scriptures and the narratives where we can go and learn how to, does God view us in these moments when we do feel like this uh, and put him at the center of it and see that he has mercy for us when we are struggling, that Jesus suffered our sorrows perfectly so that we would not suffocate under the burden of having to suffer them perfectly on our own. And it doesn't mean that we excuse sin, you know, but it does mean that we have the freedom to to explore and to reflect and to cry out for help and to just be imperfect, to cry out to our Savior to the point where, you know, Paul talks about in Romans 7, where he says, you know, miserable, wretched man that I am, you know, who will deliver me from this body of death? Mm. He doesn't just stay there. He doesn't say, oh, woe is me, you know, but he says, no, thanks be to God or our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have deliverance through him, you know, so I could go on and on um, when you start talking about thanks be to God for Jesus. But uh, that that's the hope hope that we can have these the ten, sit in the tension of these difficult overwhelming emotions but know that um, we can put christ at the center of those moments and, and take a meaningful step forward through them i hear you saying that we should take the shame out of um admitting that we're struggling and i think when we talk a lot about that word should warren um and i do think that when we do use that word too much we are putting so much shame on ourselves. And, and it does sound like you're saying, you know, we, we have to stop putting that shame on ourselves and we have to accept that this is what we're feeling, but we can work through it. We're, we're not mm -hmm. going to stay in the misery and the, the longer we hide and, and, and say, we shouldn't feel a specific way, then the less time we are spending being able to heal from it. Yeah. Because it ends up saying, if you're suffering, you're sinning and putting those two, two things, how do you escape that? How do you get forgiven? for experiencing what you're experiencing you you can't because it's not actually sin so we talk often about toxic shame we have a phrase we use a lot stop shooting yourself because shooting equals shaming mm. shooting comes from a place you've already failed you've already blown it right so we say i need to or i ought to or i could i could uh, i can and so that's future focus and that's hope focused uh, so yeah, very very important. I think that that uh, a very important part of the conversation for sure. So what's next for you? No, oh, I have a new mini book coming out with New Growth Press in fall 2024 called Postpartum Depression: Hope for a Hard Season. And so I just turned that in. So I'm thankful for that. And I believe I also will be working on this year another mini book with the Lifeline mini book series. Um, called Help My Spouse is Depressed. So you guys kind of alluded to that subject. Um, and then there are other things, you know, uh, ministry-wise in terms of speaking engagements. But 
I think the the most challenging thing is that I want to uh, homeschool my two youngest children starting next fall. And so when we talk about balance, you know, and priorities, that's something that the Lord has really put on my heart for this season of life they're getting into and um, recognizing that that will mean sacrifices for me and my time and what I'm able to do in terms of ministry productivity. So I'm trusting the Lord with those sacrifices and, and knowing that, um, you know, whatever he wants me to do, he'll give me the strength I need to do it uh, day by day. And however much that produces in terms of resources from that point, um, I, it's, it's in his hands. So that's kind of what's on the radar for next year. Right. When you so graciously said yes, just, I mean, you and I have been connected on Facebook for a while, but when you so graciously said yes at, uh, at, at the ACBC conference about, about doing this, I thought, wow, I'm excited. And, and then, but then as I read the book, I thought, this is golden. This is going to be amazing. So, yeah, I I'm really delighted. I I I I feel special because you've been doing this with us. Um, um, we are deeply appreciative of you being here today, and uh, I know our audience uh, is is will be able to gain a much clearer understanding of uh, how authentic we can be, and authentic biblical soul care um, can be effective in helping people come to know Christ, grow in Christ, gain, gain freedom over the stresses and distresses and troubles of life. Uh, I really appreciate you be sharing your heart so openly. Um, um, I'm going to go back and listen to this again because there's, it, there's just such rich content here. Very much appreciate you being here. Thank you for the invitation. It was a joy to reflect on some of these hard things, but uh, ultimately to land on that, that thanks be to God, right? For our Lord Jesus Christ is a great place to end. So thank you. <laughs> Amen. Yes, no, I echo those sentiments. The book was, um, I will probably read it again. I already have plans to give it to uh, my mops group and moms that I know um, uh, have said sentences from, from this book with me already. And I feel like this will offer more hope um, uh, and guidance for them. So thank you for your courage and your bravery in writing this um, and um, yeah, letting it be a, a vessel to help so many moms that I know will benefit from it. Yeah, really. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a bestseller if, if it isn't already. It'll be a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to echo what Warren and Jenda said, you know, I, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your heart. Um, so openly. And I know just today the podcast has been so encouraging and a lot um, has spoken to my heart and mm -hmm. your book is beautiful and same as Jenda. I'm like, oh, I want to get so many copies and share and, and hope that um, the women in my life will read it. So thank you. Thank you for your bravery and your, and your courage and, and your surrender, your um, complete humbleness and your surrender to God and entrusting him is, is also very inspiring. Yeah, very much. Yeah. You guys have made me feel much more special than I think I am, but so thanks. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's an encouraging thing, but um, yeah, definitely thankful just to serve. However, God yeah. decides. So yeah. yeah. We're grateful for your ministry. Uh, we don't normally pray at the end of a podcast, but I feel it'd be appropriate. Thanks. Father, I really want to thank you for our time 
together with Christine and appreciate how you've walked beside her in very deep, dark, lonely places, ministered to her very personally and specifically in ways that she was able to heal and learn and grow and be able to very humbly share that with others, to be able to say, I'm not the only one, and to be able to say, there is hope for me and there's help for me. That's We know that's how the gospel works. We know that how is how the indwelling Christ works. And just this reminder today has been so encouraging to all of us, and we know it will be for our listeners as well. As you continue to um, honor Christine's desire to love and serve you well, to serve her family, and help her continue to make the wise choices she needs to to continue to walk faithfully in your will and to be blessed in the process. All this we pray to your glory in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Soul Care Podcast. We pray this has been a blessing and an encouragement for you. We want to leave you with four thoughts to reflect on. Is your identity in Christ or something else? How well do you understand the true nature and character of God? How much confidence do you have in who God is? And how does all of this impact what you are struggling with today? If you desire to learn more, check out the show notes for more resources and information. And please don't forget, you matter to God.